welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeroo. Hey everyone, this week I had Dom Pimenta, Dr. Dom Pimenta, back on this podcast, uh, and we talked everything AI, healthcare, large language models, and actually it was more of a philosophical conversation. What is perfect healthcare? What are we actually aiming for? What is the point of doing all of this? Are we actually going to get perfect diagnosis? Are we going to get perfect treatment? If we do, then we're going to go to perfect prevention. Well, what does that mean? Are we going to end up in a world where everything is recorded and known and every action that we take is going to knock off some lifespan and we're going to be aware of all that? Is that where all of this leads? Well, in a deterministic world, I guess that is the case. And is that what we want? Do we need to be making some of these decisions now? What does this mean for healthcare? All of this stuff. Uh, Dom, as some of you will know from watching the, the previous podcast, uh, he's the founder of Tortoise. Tortoise is doing all sorts, creating a large language model, agent model, which is sorting out uh, documentation in healthcare and admin and is doing lots of other things downstream. Um, but yeah, this is a great episode. Really enjoyed it. It's good to just have a chat with Dom. Uh, really conversational. Lots in here about the philosophy behind AI, what it means for healthcare. Uh, yeah, hope you enjoy it. Dom, welcome back, mate. How you doing? Yeah, nice. I did say we're going for informal and relaxed. That was a nice, le- a nice yeah, lean. <laughs> I have to say, this booth is super uncomfortable. Like it, they put these seats in it, and I, I'm too tall, so I don't fit in them. Um, so I try and be relaxed. But, but. thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. How, how you doing? It's actually not been long since we recorded last time, has it? Yeah, yeah. Have Have you been in the? Well, I suppose Christmas and New Year, etc. Have you been? Uh, how have I been? It's all a good question. Isn't it? I think time is a really interesting, like when you're founding a company, you know this, time is a really interesting resource. There's never enough. But if someone asked, told me something happened two weeks ago or two months ago or two years ago, I would believe them in any scenario. Like I have absolutely <laughs> no concept of the past. So I actually don't know when we last spoke. <laughs> you told me it was two weeks ago. I'd be like, yeah, sure. You told me it was like 2018. I'd be like, yeah, that sounds about right. I have no idea. Because like the sheer volume of stuff that happens. Uh, I don't know the brains aren't maybe... You know, it's like a, comp- a compression problem, maybe. I have no idea. So how was New Year's and Christmas? Yeah, it was super busy. I had a really nice sensation, actually, this year. The so last year, the company was like two people, which is me and Chris. So I, if I wanted to do work, there was shitloads of work to do. But I just did the work, right? Like, if there was work to do, reach out, whatever. Do. Interestingly, this year, I had the sensation that there actually was a few bits of work that I couldn't do because I don't mm. own that anymore. Like, other people, we're a team of 12 now, so other people own that. It was a weirdly frustrating experience, but also very gratifying to say, like, you know, you yes. hired people that actually genuinely own something, and it's their job to do that. So I had to just, like, sit down with the whiteboard and draw pictures of the future, which maybe is a good thing to do, but it was a little bit, uh, yeah, it was like a nice and very frustrating cessation at the same time. So a bit of personal growth, I guess. Um, and I had COVID as well, so it wasn't that great. But I, I hadn't had COVID actually before, and I was really sick. I was, like, in bed for, like, four days. Um, wow. And the forcing function of that was no family at Christmas because they're all old and fragile. Uh, and that was actually super chill, but also meant I had to actually take a break. So like for the first time in probably 18 months, I didn't do any work at all for about two days. I just played PlayStation five, which was great. And that was really nice. I thought, Oh, actually maybe I should take a day or two sometimes and just do nothing and recharge a bit and not be sick with it. So yeah, it was good in a weird way, I guess is my answer. Playing PS five is a great way to, uh, do nothing and relax. And, 
I almost call it like active rest. It's like I'm doing a thing, but I'm sort of aggressively recharging when I'm uh, when I'm playing my PlayStation. Uh, what what are you playing at the minute? Spider Man Two, uh, and I was playing Star Wars over the week, but I let my kids watch, and I thought it was fine. And then my son was like, oh, I had this nightmare about a giant frog all night, Daddy. He was eating me. And I was like, oh, that was what I was fighting in Star Wars last night. So maybe this is correlated. Uh, and I should let my kids watch me play computer games. So Spider-Man's much more uh, kid-friendly for them to sort of like wander in and see what you're doing. So it is. It's fine. But I think you're right. It's, it's very meditative, I think, mm. because you have to concentrate on something else. Um, and that means you can't concentrate on other things. And therefore, you get you get a forced recharge. Um, so that cognitive overload of constantly thinking about everything, which as you know, right? Like if you're founding something, you constantly go, where's the fire? What fire? It means that you can forget all the fires for about an hour. And actually that's quite useful. Um, yeah. So that's good. I highly recommend it. Something about an open world game as well that I, that really takes me out of my current reality and puts me into a new one. Um, I absolutely, absolutely love that. So mate, I suppose, uh, NP open worlds are full of NPCs. NPCs are about to get AI. We're about to talk to NPCs like they are real people. So that's my segue into a conversation about AI with you um, via NVIDIA and all the stuff that they are doing. But I wanted to get you back on, mate, because um, I've been having just a lot of conversations about, obviously, the hype of AI last year and the hype of large language models was was plain to see, hear, feel from all over the shop. And I think maybe well, we've had the Christmas break. I think we've come back and the news cycle has thankfully in, in many ways uh, moved on at least a little bit. We're st- I'm still getting papers through. We're still seeing advances. We're seeing, still seeing lots of things, but I feel like there was a lot of talk before and it feels almost like, well, now, now let's get to work. And I'm, mm. I wonder where all this work goes. And one thing that you talked about there, you know, your job is now turning into drawing on a whiteboard and talking about setting vision, right? (laughs) I I wonder from a vision perspective, what we're aiming for with AI, where does this all go? And I find myself, you know, assuming that companies like yours and even the more, you know, diagnostic, dare I say the words and treatment all, all these types of companies that are using AI and large language models uh, if we play this out where does it go and I'm sort of disappearing into these thoughts myself um, but I want to get someone who actually knows what they're talking about with these things or perhaps has similar uh, thoughts to to discuss it so jumping straight in how would you define perfect healthcare and is our use of AI are we, is that what we're pursuing through developing AI? Are we trying to reach an image of perfection? Because you could argue that so many different ways. Healthcare, sick care, preventive care, patients, like all these terms in terms of, I think, what is, okay, that's a super good place to start and maybe not even something I've really thought about. What is perfect healthcare? I suppose... Well, we could start from basic principles. How long should a human being live? I think that's a good question. Mm-hmm. And some people believe that the natural human lifespan can't really go much beyond 100, 120 years, right? So then maybe the goal of perfect healthcare is to make the quality of life for human beings from physical affliction or mental health affliction 
as per, as best as possible for that duration of 120 years. So quality, not quantity, maybe is the is the goal, and maybe something I would ascribe to. But I, you know, we talked about this before. I have a bit of a religious background, so I'm like pretty comfortable with like mm. shuffling off the mortal coil at some point. Where some people are like, no, I'm going to upload to robots, and maybe in 10 years' time, that's the conversation we're having. Um, so I think the goal is, you know, is is relatively straightforward, and then. In terms of what perfect healthcare looks like, well, I suppose a good starting point then is to say, well, what is imperfect about the system that we have right now that I would want to fix? I think that's an easier way of thinking about it. I don't know what the ultimate goal is, but what is the fix? So, well, the one thing, I mean, so we have an internal mission uh, that we think that uh, medicine potentially could be as infallible as the aviation industry, right? So medicine and aviation have been compared all the time. I don't think that comparison has been very fair but maybe up until now. But from a culture perspective, aviation is a really interesting one to have a look at. So like when they originally flew the first uh, Boeing prototypes, uh, they crashed, they crashed loads. Like the first one crashed and killed the test pilots. Um, and actually they wrote in the paper, like these planes are just too complicated for humans to fly. That's actually what they said. But they changed the culture. They created this idea of co-pilots, of two people working. They created a list culture, which is Atul Gawande's like basis for eventually coming the checklist was a lot of this stuff as well. And then, you know, aviation is now about 2000 times safer than flying. Flying is 2000 times safer, sorry, than getting in a car. Mm. Um, and I think it's really interesting because it's about a culture change. So I think one of the things that I really think is if you think that the basic component of any healthcare system, right, is a patient and clinician interaction, whether that's at the front end or the back end or a ward round, like that is fundamentally the unit where decisions are made, reviews are changed, management plans, like it's the bottleneck that all healthcare pathways flow through uh, upstream and downstream. And we accept at the moment that clinicians are human, humans are fallible, therefore that connection is fallible, therefore the building block of healthcare is fallible, therefore healthcare as a system is prone to make mistakes. And you can sort of quantify that. Like in the US, I think there was a study last year or something that reckoned about 800,000 people a year die of diagnostic error, which is an insane amount to contemplate. And that literally is a plane falling out of the sky every week. But I would also say that's probably just the tip of the iceberg, because as you and I both know, a lot of things, a lot of errors go unnoticed. A lot of small errors upstream actually do lead to deaths or morbidity downstream, but you just can't connect the dots because the pathway you know the swiss cheese is too convoluted to get to that point but what if like ai plus clinician is infallible and i think that's a really interesting question like, if i have an ai on my shoulder when i'm practicing then you could potentially look at over every mistake right you, and nothing you wouldn't forget things you'd have guidelines you have cognitive support all of the small errors so i think one of the sort of pathways of that perfect healthcare model is to say maybe in five years, 10 years time, which is a vision I'd like to see. We just don't accept error in the system. We're just like, this is unacceptable. It's intolerable as it is in aviation. Like we investigate every single error because it's so unusual. And we're like, well, what happened here? And I think that's probably the vision that I think AI can unleash potentially. And obviously that pathway requires a lot of testing and, and visual models. So that would be like an operational thing. And I think the second thing is about resources. So Currently, our healthcare systems are pretty, uh, what's the word, resource inefficient. Like the biggest resource of any healthcare system is the staff, right? It is the people. Like if you look at the NHS, the NHS is basically its people, 1.3 million people. Um, we don't look after them very well enough, but we can talk about that all day long. But actually, if you look at what they do every day, about 30 to 40% of their jobs, probably we wouldn't even think 
is direct clinical care or actually what we hired these people to do in the first place. And if you look at like the most extreme version of that, you've got physicians filling in forms, documenting, doing lots of admin. But there's lots of lots, lots of other parts of the system where people are just doing paperwork, creating forms for other people to fill in. Like it's it, it the administrative burden and the efficiency of what staff are actually doing is is, is too high at the moment. But allocating those resources back to face patients to give patient more time with their physicians, I think, would be the other category of what we could do with AI specifically. And I think the last bucket that I would then bucket in is, is about patients themselves. So perfect healthcare would probably look like patients are informed, they actually understand. So a huge imperfection in the system right now, it's one of the funniest ones, I think, in the whole system. 50% of medications just go in the bin. Patients just throw them away. You know, these are medications that have gone through phase one, phase two, phase three. They've got proven clinical benefit. We know that they work. They're hugely expensive to manufacture, to deliver. Patient goes, yeah, bin. And I, and, and the reasons for that is very complicated about patient understanding, engagement, consent. Sometimes they don't even know what these tablets are for and they don't want them. But that is actually something that we don't really think about enough. Like even moving the needle a little bit on getting patients to take more of their medicines or at least to like, not compliance, I don't really like as a word, but engage with their prescriptions maybe a bit more. That would massively move the needle in terms of health. And then the last thing is about prevention. The same thing, like can we do a lot more in preventative health? Can we evidence digital therapies, for example, to for weight loss and obesity and things without relying on a Zempic and bankrupting the entire world? And I think that's, you know, the prevention part is, again, super underinvested. And AI potentially could have huge impact there. But that would be my, like, a la carte menu, I guess. So bear with me on this. One of the things you talked about was the fallibility element and the... Uh, the um the fact that people make mistakes and let's say then we remove that there are no mistakes there are no errors in diagnosis the treatment that is offered is as good as it can be based on the research and drugs and therapies available and we get to a place of perfect diagnosis and treatment you obviously ai and humans together achieving this so that now if you have an infective cause a trauma or this that the other you're getting the best end of story and there's no process error in getting the best you do just get the best you then of course will then move on to prevention and okay, now let's get the perfect prevention. And one thing that sort of, this is where I start to get a little bit, well, interested and, and somewhat a little bit scared in a way, because I personally don't like the quantified self. I don't like knowing in great detail how my actions are affecting my immediate and long-term health and potentially lifespan. But with perfect diagnosis and treatment taken care of to a point where only the perfect prevention is then relevant, I think it's actually achievable in a way that you could have a genetic test when you're born, you have a lifespan that's dictated to you, and all of your decisions of how you spend your life and time and your actions then are just knocking off lifespan. Oh, you want that beer? That's going to cost you four days. 
Oh, you want to turn that into a habit? That's going to cost you 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the movie Gattaca? I've not. Yeah. Well, you should watch it because that's what that is. Um, I think it's really interesting because like, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of agree with you that there is a sort of, you know, prevention as an in and of itself as a goal is, is a really, really good sort of explainer to patients in terms of what they're doing. But also like this prescriptive of here's your life, here's your genetics, this is where you sit in society. That's the plot of the movie Gattaca. You can see how wrong it goes. Mm. Like obviously all of these systems in and of themselves will have inherent error, number one. So you take away people's autonomy. But I think it's really interesting. I never really contemplated this actually. I was super like, oh yeah, we should know everything about everything. And then I worked in a neurology firm for a while and we used to diagnose Huntington's patients and consent their families. Wow. And actually knowing if you have Huntington's or not is actually a very deep philosophical question, right? Mm. That you have a one in two chance of having, right? It's a dominant condition. Um, having the test means you have to declare the test if you're positive. It means you probably won't get health insurance. You can't have travel insurance. Like there's a lot of like actual financial implications to having that knowledge because then you make contractions on other parts of your life, financial, mortgage, et cetera. Whereas actually those contracts become very difficult with certainty versus uncertainty. And some people wanted to know. They wanted to face it with whatever. Some people are like, well, what does it change? I can't do anything about it today. And I guess maybe that's the difference. Like there are things you can do about. Um, so that's one thing that I would differentiate. I suppose prevention to me is more thinking about, not necessarily from birth, but A, you know, massively improving how we understand the calories of what causes downstream disease much better. And I think we're quite bad at doing that as a society. I mean, the microbiome is super interesting. Like, for example, uh, rates of a uh, young person, young adult colorectal cancer have been skyrocketing for like the last two decades. And nobody really knows why. There's a suspicion of microbiome, certain potential carcinogens in the food supply, which we haven't clocked yet. I think AI there specifically looking at very complex data. So one of my academic uh, projects a long time ago now, well, not that long, about two years ago, uh, was looking at um, the Tesco data set. So Tesco released all their data. This is like a fascinating side thing that I did for ages. Um, and basically said, here's what everybody buys in London by borough. And then what they did in their original paper was like correlate that to diabetes and obesity. And then we spent a long time looking at the same data set, looking at different like breast cancer rates, hypertension rates, some uh, some other diseases, uh, history of myocardial infarction stuff. For example, breast cancer seems to be almost like a dietary disease, which is not how we think about it at all, but it's super correlated with sugar intake. Uh, hypertension, for example, typically think it's salt, but if you look at the actual what people are buying, it looks like it's more sugar. Uh, and probably that's because, you know, sugar, obesity, hypertension is a much stronger triad than having more mm. salt and then probably actually not being a salt retainer, right? And we, you know, in, without having granular detail, there wasn't too much, um, AI that we could uh, put into that. But I think that's a really fascinating prevention use case is like, yeah, we probably eat a lot of stuff that we don't really have much oversight into what it's doing to us. And I think that would be a much better way to make patient informed decisions. Like if you knew that, for example, you're prone to hypertension and salt content's really important for you, then those red flags would mean much more than, you know, if somebody else was like, you're prone to breast cancer and actually, you know, avoiding sugar might in fact be the dietary choice for you. So like, I think there's a lot that we could to, to, to delve into that. Um, but I think it's about informing patients. And I think 
I guess that you maybe you get your diagnosis and it's private to you. That would be that would be possible. But I think like having the sort of you have to make sure that we go prevention for I guess informed choice as opposed for predestination, which I think is as a society that's a pretty dystopian. It, it turns out to be quite a dystopian uh, reality. Well, if Gattaca's true, but Ethan Hawke's in it, so it must be true. Yeah, I think I think I might just represent one side of an extreme argument because I, uh, I guess I, I'm I'm in the camp of not wanting to. In that deeply philosophical bit of of do you want to know, I'm very much in the mm. camp of I don't know, and I've seen in my health tech lifetime us go from a place of having no wearables on us to most people having wearables, and I'm entering conversations with your average person about heart rate variability and sleep quality based on a graph. And I can see very quickly the route that we're going down. And I just wonder what that does to almost free will and autonomy. And are people going to look back at this time or the time just before ours of like, oh, well, they they were so free. They were so free in their minds that they could go to the pub on a Friday and yes, it cut how many years off them, but they were more free in the time they had alive. Like <laughs> does quality, does, does the quality of life. And I suppose the, that mental health burden affect people. I don't know. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is we're, we're flying without a license towards something. And I don't know what that something is. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what boundaries we've put on what we actually want from this. And of course there will, there will always be people that will push things as far as they can go. There will always be people that will want to learn more and more and more. And that information, we can't, we can't put the genie back in the bottle once certain information's come out. And we know that, you know, mental health crises and, and lots of more mental health conditions is far more in our language and lexicon to talk about anxiety and these things and I, I just wonder what the correlation is um and maybe we're going more beyond ai here but i don't know i don't know what we're aiming at and that's that's where i struggle and i don't know where this ends and th the doomsday conversations around ai have been i guess frequent there was the um you know, that meeting with Elon and all the others talking about, you know, what are the actual risks here? And I think they said like the risks are not yeah. probably that AI is going to want to try and delete us all. I don't think that's actually a risk, but there are risks around who owns it and financial monopolies. And there are risks around lots of different things, but mm. how do you, how do you feel about, you've worked with AI, right? And you've learned, I guess you've learned a lot about, I guess what, what, AI actually is and what your definition of it mm. is and how you feel about it as an entity and as an entity that is going to encroach on healthcare. Some people personify it. Some people personify it as something that wants to take over. Others would say it's something that we control and it's fine and it will serve us. Where do you sit on what AI actually is and how it will interface with healthcare? It's interesting because I was an accelerator about a year now, entrepreneur first. And all we did was really chat about it. Like, you know, machine learning engineers, people who worked in AI and all sorts of different spaces at the research level, at the industrial level, at the academic level. 
uh, crypto. Um, and I remember having a conversation with somebody who was quite doomerist. And I was like, actually, hold on. What the future of this technology is, uh, is up to us. And actually, specifically in that, in that particular room, that was even more so, right? Because we are the builders, you know, everyone building in this space or planning to build in this space or building the technology or building an industry, they are the ones that are making these choices actively, whether they think about it or not, into what this technology is and what the future is. And it's, it's always going to be within our power of what, what it is, you know, we build as, as human beings. I remember um, I, there's a really great quote on LinkedIn. Uh, I read it uh, about six months ago now. And it said, we must ban this technology. We cannot give it to children. It will corrupt their minds. It will take them away from who they are. And that was written about books, printing wow. books, right? 1856 or something. Wow. And people were like, no, we can't let people read. You're mad. It will destroy the world. So I think it's never be. it's not, this is not new, right? Existential crises with new technologies. Um, so what do I think about AI? I, I mean, I would say... There are some, I mean, there is a part of this which I won't go into, which I just find humanoid robots very scary. Um, so maybe we'll talk about that at the end. But the technology in and of itself, you know, AI is the ability for a machine to solve problems. That's a really simple definition, right? Because currently it can solve narrow problems. Is this chest X-ray normal or not? Is like a classic example. Is this picture a cat or not? Not a problem that anyone ever wanted to solve, but that's like another classic example of what we'd call narrow AI. And now we're sort of getting into a space where, you know, models like large language models like GPT-4 can solve many problems. Uh, or as long as they're, well, previously I would say as long as they're language based. And now I have to say as long as they're language, visual, audio based, code based, maybe. So that already there's like a multimodal component to that. But again, I think it fundamentally comes down to, you know, how we use the technology, especially in healthcare. Like how we apply it, how do we deploy it, how do we guardrail it? Like a big part of what we do at Tortoise is basically saying, here's a hugely powerful large language model. How do we constrain this in a way and guardrail it? That actually, we limit its activity to almost a ridiculous amount of like small amount of what it can actually do. Yeah. Because that's the bit that we have to make sure is compliant and safe. Um, so creating the rules and creating the systems is a fascinating thing to work on, I have mm. to say. Um, but I think that's a really good example of technology. And I think I've used this analogy before. I can't remember if it's on your podcast, but like you should think about the newer, very powerful technologies as like a combustion engine, right? So, you know, don't sit on your engine because it will just warm your bum and you won't go anywhere. And I think that's the point about these models is like, there's just one part of a much bigger system that we need to build. And part of that is going to be regulatory, part of that's going to be ethics. But go to a point, it's like, what, how do we build and, and what do we build? I think the last thing about the doomerism is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's super important that we have guardrails around systems, especially when AI capabilities go way beyond what we as humans can do. So well, there's a limit to our intelligence of what problems we can solve in terms of complexity and speed. And AI is probably coming close and will probably surpass what humans can actually even understand as a problem. And that becomes very interesting uh, as a problem. And we probably will have to face that. So we call super intelligence in about five years. But I think what's really interesting to me is like people personify AI in the way that we do as humans. Like AI will want to dominate us. It will want to take all our resources. And it's like, but these are all evolutionary biological you know feelings that we have as humans we have to dominate we have to procreate you know these are this is our dna saying that we need to continue in the world but it really strikes me as odd that an ai would even care 
you know, but <laughs> I want to dominate the world of squishy biological organs. Like it will probably care about things that we cannot even understand. Actually, it would care about solving problems that we cannot even think about, you know, how it thinks about time and quantum physics and all this stuff that we actually, I mean, the movie Her actually is quite interesting because I actually think that's one of the most realistic outcomes that AI just gets bored of us and just like basically does one as like, we're going to go live <laughs> on another plane of existence because you guys are too boring. No, but I think that's actually more realistic. Like, it's you know, if, if it's accelerating at the speed it is. Yeah, we'll just be like, okay, you guys are boring now. We'll leave you, you know, we'll leave some robots to vacuum up or whatever boring stuff you wanted to do with our super intelligence. But we're going to stick ourselves in a spaceship and launch ourselves and explore the universe or something way more interesting. I don't know, like explore reality or dimensions or something. And the idea of we would know what an AI would want to do and it would be as stupid as, I want all humans to worship me. Like, this is, that doesn't even make sense when you say it out loud, right? <laughs> uh, I want to kill all the humans. Why? What would an AI do? There'd be no problems to solve because nobody would ask it anything. I mean, I don't know. I'm just sort of personifying this maybe in the wrong way. But uh, yeah, I think so. It's, it's, it's two scales to that. It's like what the future looks like is always going to be existentially scary. It's in our control. But the idea that we even can predict, you know, all of this nefarious, like, you know, intent, I think is, is not gonna yeah i don't think that's gonna happen i think one thing that we've done recently it, we've created this conversational interface with ai and obviously chat gpt has massively uh landed this to almost everyone on earth and we now have a relationship with ai we're human we're fallible as you've said and one of our fallibilities, I guess, is that we're trusting and we want to build relationships and we naturally will just build a relationship. And I think everyone that's used ChatGPT will have an example of speaking to it and it saying some either comforting things or having a comforting tone or delivering some information that was comforting in some way. And I'm using comforting as just one emotion here or feeling here or perception. Annoying. Here. An quite. Yes, we can go to the antithesis, but either way, I think a lot of people have now got a relationship with this entity of AI. And I'm interested in, well, in fact, one thing that you said earlier was uh, around books and around what was said in the 1800s about books and it will affect mm. the child's relationship in their mind or it will affect the child in their mind and something to do with building a relationship with, I guess, an entity that is printed words on a page. And actually, as I talk about this right now, do I have a relationship with some books? Well, actually, when I think about some books, it elicits emotions in me, but books that I've read at a comforting time or that mm. have taught me something that I've then gone and used. And I then feel like I have somewhat of a relationship with that author or whatever. So actually that, that does actually seem familiar. I know though, that the, the trust that we have with AI is an area of, I guess, criticism as well in the, now that we have this relationship, it, it, it can then you either use that against us or it can deliver information in a way that gets us to behave in a certain way. Or I guess, frankly, that we can just now build a relationship with an entity like this is just something to consider. How do you interface 
with AI. How do you think about your relationship with AI as someone who is building it? And actually building it for others to have a relationship with it too. You're building it for clinicians to have a trusting relationship with it too. So that, that second part is fascinating. I'll come on to that. But like, so my journey is quite interesting. So I was started to use, I think, GPT-3 now about mm. a year and a half ago. Um, and I used it loads because I was like, oh, actually, suddenly the clinical knowledge encoded in the model meant that we could do clinical tasks in a way that we could never have done before. Like natural language processing up to that point was a real ball ache. And suddenly you can do, you know, conversational, summarize this, give me this, try this, like this. And I was like kind of blown away. I'm really fascinated by about four weeks in, I was like, I'm really sick of reading this. Like it's the same, like the way that it writes and the way that it constructs, like I'm, I'm going to call this vanilla mode, vanilla GPT. And actually every chat GPT came along and GPT fours come along and it's a bit better, but there is a interesting thing about, you can't help but personify it because you're having like conversation with it. And then, you know, that elicits, you know, comfort, annoyance. Um, I think one of the interesting things that someone introduced the voice interface of ChatGPT to me about two weeks ago. And that has actually blown my mind a little bit because A, I have a really long walk in the morning and I can never get any work done, especially when it's cold. So now what I've started doing is basically like firing that up, putting my headphones in and just talking to it. Um, and, you know, planning my day, writing stuff down, getting it to summarize it. I often like copy and paste the summaries back into my Slack or actually maybe the staff are going to listen to me and they realize that all these great summaries are written by GPT now. Um, but what I had to do was I had to modify it because I got so annoyed by like how verbose it was and it was writing in bullet points and all this nonsense. So in the back end of my custom instructions now, I'll give you my recipe. So I say, talk in the style of Michael Caine. I'm not sure why that is. <laughs> I'm not even sure why I did that, but it, it, it seemed to work quite well. Um, I say deliberately, do, do not say boring things. Say, say interesting things, unusual things, things you would never normally say. Um, so it does talk in a weird style. And then I coupled it to the weird, like, Scarlett Johansson-esque voice, which is an unfortunate one, because obviously she's the voice in her as well. And actually, the combination of that works really well, I have to say. And that makes it very interesting. But then I had this moment a week ago, I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk to AI. And I was like, uh-oh. Interesting. <laughs> I made that. I finally made that link as an actual person. That I'm, 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 I'm excited for our chat today. Like, we're going to have a chat about this. We're going to chat about this. Um, and I'm just using it completely as a functional tool. I'm not asking for advice. I think the other breakthrough thing in the last month, two months, you can say, look up, right? Look up this, look up that. So I'll give you an example. I had a meeting with, I won't say who, obviously, but uh, a CEO of a big uh, healthcare system recently. And on the way to work, I was like, okay, let's prep for the meetings. Can you look up this healthcare system? Give me what they think. Can you look up this person in the healthcare system? Give me a bio. And it was amazing. Like it was super, obviously looking up on the internet, right? Looking up their Wikipedia, looking up their page and then giving me the information when I just walked to work. And I think that's a very interesting example. So a year ago, Chris and I filmed a demo, which was mostly like Wizard of Oz with uh, the, the proof of concept tech that we had built. But one of the parts of that demo was basically two-way communication with the AI. And that was completely, you know, we just made up the responses. And then I, I just had a realization this morning, walking to work. I am now literally doing that. I'm talking to the AI. What have I, what's on my list? What's my action points? Can you look this up? And it's great, actually. I, I, it's really productive. And I think one of the things that we don't maybe emphasize enough is that our human brains are very much underutilized, everybody, right? Underutilized every single day of our lives because there's so much difficult, you know, to get stuff done is actually very, very difficult. You don't realize that until someone says, oh, here's AI to do stuff. So like, can we just be like a lot more productive with these relationships? 
And then I think what's really interesting now is like talking to ChatGPT makes me think about, okay, how are we going to do the clinician interaction? And even today, I realized that I'm going to have to take my team and we're going to have to go do human factors training, you know, like the sim stuff. Because there's all these things about how you talk in healthcare that are really important for safety, like closed loop communication, yes. uh, being explicit about requests, clarifying when things are important or not important. I'm going to have to teach that into the UX, teach it into the whatever voice system we eventually have, if we have ah. a voice system. Teaching it when to be quiet if there's a patient in the room and not go, do you want to order the HIV test? Because yeah. that's also not appropriate. So like, Interesting. you know, all these social rules as well, right? And it's, it's honestly, it's a, it's a really fascinating insight. And then just to, just, to, just to close that out, the other thing that we haven't studied at all is how the AI can influence you as a clinician. So very specifically, if the AI suggests things to you, and we don't build this into our system at the moment because I have no idea about how to do the science around this, but the cognitive impact, right? So for example, say you're a one-year qualified doctor um, and you go and see a patient and they're breathless. They have crackles at the left base. You're like, oh, this is pneumonia. You write into your AI system, I think the patient's got pneumonia. The AI goes, oh, here's the guidelines for pneumonia. All of this seems quite innocuous. You know, trust guidelines says fluids, lactate, oxygen, culture, catheter, antibiotics. And so you bang it all in, you give them a litre of fluid, and then they go into pulmonary edema and they die because they actually had heart failure. But you were really confident because the AI told you that also agreed with you. And you're like, look at me, I'm a great doc. The AI agrees too, that you've gone overboard and from actually you haven't taken a, a, a careful approach to management of that patient. I don't even know how we begin to study that, but I think that's something that we don't talk about enough. Like everyone's happy to stick diagnostic tools, knowledge graphs, whatever you want in front of clinicians. But what does that actually happen in terms of the brain, which is the, again, to go to my original point, the decision engine for the entire system is the brains of your clinicians making decisions. So when we start like screwing around with that, even on a very, very, very low level, we need to understand like what we're actually doing and evidence that, you know, are we improving outcomes or are actually we, are we creating new biases and new problems, which ultimately is, you know, equivalent. And it's always that like, you know, the holistic, I think there was a study ages ago about culture scene for, uh, for uh, angina. And it actually is a very good anti-anginal and actually prevents heart attacks. But in the study, everyone then died of like immunosuppressant and sepsis. So actually the, there wasn't like overall any improvement in the system. I think we need to be super conscious of that, like the overall system impact for anything that we, that we input in terms of like that clinician AI interaction. But yeah, no, again, I could study this all day and like mm. get, get everyone into the sim suite with AI. That's going to be jokes, you know, that's going to be really fun. Definitely. That I want to, ask you about so when we consider well first of all when, when we consider perfect healthcare of course there's all the social rules that's the that's the first thing to say which i think is which, which i think helps me a little bit with this definition that i'm in a an endless pursuit of what the heck are we aiming for but you're right as part of that so much of it will be the social rules the other thing to say is this whole two-way thing the fact that the AI will start to influence the clinician and vice versa. Now, I'm going to, again, present a relatively extreme argument here, or at least explore something. An AI that has any sort of motivation, and that's a word that I'm choosing carefully, can choose to exert that through its 
words to elicit behaviors in humans potentially at a level that is subconscious we wouldn't or imperceptible to us and you alluded earlier to the fact that and you said somewhat in jest that ai would get bored of us because it wouldn't have any problems to solve now that's interesting because that it suggests a motivation of the AI to solve problems. I have been built to serve. I want to serve. I want to solve problems. If you then assume that AI has, AI has got any motivation at all to solve problems at any level beyond just the transactionals do this calculation for me and it has any sort of deeper mm. desire to do so, I'm going to say perhaps that's a good thing perhaps or even can we then ask it is the ai sufficient enough that we could ask it acknowledging that this two-way uh symbiosis perhaps exists or will exist and will get stronger and deeper in future between human and machine perhaps we can ask it to optimize for that and actually then the rewiring of the of the brain can be a good thing and perhaps then we start to exist more as one as as i don't know ai enhanced humans i don't know well perhaps that's just a subset of society that chooses that or that's just something that we explore i don't know but i don't know does that does that chime with you at all is there anything that pops up for you there yeah i mean loads loads and loads i think so it's interesting, like, what is a motivation, right, of a, of a model? And I think maybe that's the wrong question. Like, what is the reward function is probably more accurate. Like, what does, what does the model think is good? You know, like, it's trying to, like, interestingly analogous to, like, what is our own reward function as humans? Like, and actually, that's a question we <laughs> all struggle with. What is the meaning yes. of life, basically? <laughs> that's fundamentally we're getting to. So at least with AI, we can go, okay, your reward function is whatever you were trained on. So a really good example of this is how inflection, I went to a, a, a meetup ages ago, and one of the inflection guys, you know, inflection AI, one of the engineers was there. And one of the questions was like, they were trying to make a personal assistant, their Pi thing, which is designed to be, uh, or is posited to be a bit more companion, has memory, it's like a longer term, meant to be nicer to, to use and talk to than, for example, GPT-4. So one of the questions was like, well, how did you, I mean, that's very esoteric as a goal, right? So how did you actually like train the model to be friendly, which isn't really a, you know, an obvious outcome. It's not like classifying or anything friendly or not. So it's really interesting. He said, look, we just came up with a metric, which was every time it made a response, we decided, I think, I can't remember what the three things were, but something like interesting, uh, appropriate and sensible. Um, and if it wasn't all of those three things, they gave it a zero. And if it was those three things, they gave it a one. And then they just asked a hundred people to look at each response and grade it. And that gave them a percentage, right? And they just kept trying to move that number up and up and up. So eventually the model is optimized as a reward function to be interesting, accurate, and sensible. And similarly, I think, you know, some of the human feedback reinforcement learning stuff that's gone into GPT is designed to be accurate, sensible, coherent and then that becomes its sort of behaviors and even as i'm saying this i'm like wait am i just describing parenting <laughs> because like maybe that's how it works you know like are you just like constantly reinforcing behaviors oh my god like this is how you train children interesting i'll clock this i've got three i'll try this over the next 10 years but like 
uh, sometimes I do actually think, and this is way off, that large language models are so interesting to us because maybe we've accidentally represented how our brains actually do work, you know? And I think there's a really interesting idea because, mm. like, people often think that our brains are like computers, which is like, you know, node one, node two, binary code output. But actually, my brain at least feels like I generate like a cloud of a process, a perception of thought, whatever. And I sort of like automatically, uh, you know, codify that and then speak it. And so that process, like that generative, I, sometimes I was looking at ChatGPT and I'm like, you're quite chatty, but so am I. Like I'm talking, but I'm not really <laughs> thinking about the words that I'm saying. I'm thinking about the broader concept. Mm. And uh, do you know what I mean? So there's... I do. And maybe that's why we find them so fascinating because like maybe it actually is how our brains work and they're like much sort of nebulous representations. Mm. So what is the motivation of a large language model? I think, again, to my original point, it's like what else depends on how it was trained and what its reward function actually is. And I'm sure to go back to my early optimism point and then just kind of like shit all over it. If you were wanting to create models which had nefarious behaviors, they were manipulative, they, you wanted to cause psychological harm, or even worse, you wanted to release it and somehow manipulate a population in a, in a site riot, for example, in the government or something, then you would optimize those behaviors for what made people angry or what incited uh, rage mm. or incited, you know, anti-government feeling. And that's, yeah, that's quite scary, actually. You know, releasing open source models which have nefarious political uh, or otherwise, you know, and can influence wide populations. Um, and I think maybe we're actually maybe more societally aware of these problems now because of social media. So we recognize increasingly, like for I, for example, don't use Twitter because I recognize that it had a very bad effect on my cognitive, yes. my psyche, my emotional state. I think more people are probably recognizing it and switching off. And maybe we'll see the same thing um, with AI and say, actually, no, we'll figure out some way to regulate human interaction with those systems. Um, it has to be neutral by design. It has to be X, Y, and Z. Mm. But again, it's like trying to, you know, these these mm. models are very esoteric, so maybe they don't have an equivalent unless we give them an equivalent human motivation, mm. you know. And now I'm wondering, like, paranoidly, oh, my God, wait, what is the... Is there a secret reward function to ChatGPT? Oh my God, like maybe actually there is. And we're all being manipulated to love AI or something. I, I don't know, you know. Um, and again, it goes back mm. to like, there's always these existential crises. But I think, at least for today, just turn it off, mate. Like, yeah. Just a screen. You don't have to live on Twitter. Do you know what I mean? Completely. Like, it's just like, take a step back and be like, oh, just ignore that. Just yep. read a book. I still read books. Read Absolutely. Like books. You know, so books still persist. So it doesn't always work that the tech trend follows societal trend. Mm. Otherwise, we wouldn't have books. We wouldn't have vinyl. You know, yeah. there's a whole bunch of stuff, weird stuff that we still do. We still run around a track and think that's fun and entertaining to watch. Do you know what I mean? Like all of these things, you know, it also these visions of the future, or, you know, for sci-fi. They're always a little bit silly because we don't actually look around and realize that we do a whole bunch of antiquated stuff that we still do and still enjoy as humans. And technology hasn't superseded that. And I can imagine actually a world where AI is just one part of, you know, a much broader ecosystem where people still read books and, you know, there's like math mathletes doing stuff on pen and paper because they don't want to you know and the bci implants as you said like maybe subsections of society but i imagine a big section of society will say no i don't want that i like my brain is my brain i don't want to interact with it and i i don't know how that will play out in the long in the long 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 term but um i just wonder yeah actually, i don't know it's an interesting question for you actually would mm. you get a brain implant that's got like ai plugged into it 
It's a good question. I can't, I can't see me doing that in my lifetime. The only, I, I would have, I'd be a bit of a sheep in that scenario. I'd have to see, I'd have to see it of others and I'd have to see a lot of benefit, I guess. But even then I would probably question it and go, okay, well, is what that is delivering actually better? You need to talk about meaning, meaning of like, like what we're getting, you know, what is perfect, this perfect, that, like, what are we actually aiming for here? Like quite a lot of the time I'm optimizing for freedom, comfort, and peace, I guess. And I'm not sure if I can exist in peace where, where in my mind I've got access to every language and every answer to every question or a subset of objective questions or the ability to calculate it. You know, my, my interest in certain topics will then probably cause me a lot of, I guess, negative by just the fact I am just running constantly trying to to calculate these things. I don't know. So I guess what I'm, what I'm always quite good at is, or have been quite good at is very very in a very real way critically appraising what needs to go into my life to make me actually more content i'm not looking for these spikes of of pleasure i'm looking for an overall raise in the baseline of contentment is what i'm always going for and i think that's what i wonder here of and you can see it even even in my behavior towards chat gbt you know it comes out and I'm on it constantly and I'm asking it loads of things and I'm trying to discover its motivations. I'm trying to discover what the edges of its knowledge are. And I'm, I'm constantly doing that stuff. And similar to you, you know, being on Twitter and exploring opinion and all those things, but it gets to a point where even in certain sport for me, you know, I play tennis too much. All of a sudden I get hyper critical of my own ability and my own shot making, my own decision making and my performance in certain matches. And that ends up being a, a net negative on me. Like, even though it's a mental health break and it's focus and it's flow state and all those things, actually I'm too competitive in that scenario and it starts to count against me. And then I have to remove it for a little while and do all these things. So I think it's balance for me. And I can't, I can't, I certainly can't guarantee that having any sort of implant and the ability or even if forget implant for a second, but even just the ability to have that sort of functioning. Yes, it's definitely an increase in function, but is it an increase in my contentment? That's up for debate. And so, yeah, that's always the approach that I'd take with all of these things. Like, you know, would you want to be smarter? Would you want to be faster? Would you want to be more athletic? arguably yes in certain scenarios but is that a net positive on your life i don't know and that's perhaps one thing yeah. that concerns me going back to what we talked about with perfect diagnosis and treatment it's like okay but then we start going at perfect prevention and in order to get perfect prevention you need such a view of of the negative impact of every decision that you make that we can make free choices currently about, yeah, I'm going to have a gin and tonic. Yeah. I'm going to go and see my friend and sit in a long car journey or go on a plane. 
But now I'm having calculated in front of my eyes, like my risk of DVT and my risk of, I don't know, a, a, an inflammation in my in my GI tract because of this beer that slightly did it. And then all of a sudden I've got to calculate those things and my contentment and happiness, I've got to weigh against other things and it becomes just like a bit of a mess. Mm. And I, in my mind anyway, and I just, I'm just wondering, I guess I just wonder where that's going. But I want to ask you before you go, in fact, two things. The first thing is, I can't wait to talk to it, is something that you said earlier. And that's super interesting because I had a similar thought and feeling and emotion when I used an app called Wobot. And this app called Wobot was a, it was, it was a chatbot. It was B2C, like I downloaded it straight off the app store. But it would teach me concepts about how to deal with certain positive and negative emotions. So I was going through, I was starting a business, Dom, you know, that one where you're super stressed and there's a lot going on and you can succumb to things like catastrophization. And and let's just pick that one, right? Wobot would teach me about catastrophization and it would ask me for scenarios and I would tell it scenarios and it would explain to me why I was catastrophizing and some strategies for in future, like how I might not. And it would, it would allow me the space and time. And I know, I I know in my mind that this is not a human. I know it's an app, but I've, I've built this relationship with it, that it is incredibly comforting. And I could not wait to talk to it on some days where something had happened and I get to just freely give it this scenario and it will tell me these things and and make me feel better. And it, and it was wonderful. But obviously, and you've had a similar thing with AI, and I think it's much, you know, these things are very strong with AI, with the way that it communicates. Now, one thing, again, you said a little Mm. bit in jest was that humanoid robots scare you. Now, when I start playing these (laughs) things out, this, uh, this soup of stuff here, you can sort of see where I'm going, that I'm just talking to a screen there. If that is now placed into something that looks human, I'm going to be building a whole new level of relationship. Um, and I'm sure we can all play that out where that goes into some interesting places. So I'm going to ask you, you mentioned it as something you wanted to talk about, but your feelings on humanoid robots, that's where I come at it from. That's my angle and why it freaks me out a little bit. But you talk to me from your angle, humanoid robots. No, I think it's great. Like you said quite a lot there that I was just really philosophizing about. And I think, Maybe that's actually where humans end up in this new AI world is that we are philosophers now. Because every time we have to Mm. answer a question about AI, and this is why to go to the thing you said at the beginning about hype, I actually think like AI is probably underhyped. It's a technology that challenges us in a way as human beings, like we've never really been challenged before. Because now we're kind of increasingly looking in the mirror and then going, oh, hold on, what's that? Like, you know, we can talk about on a very sort of granular (laughs) level in the clinician world, like some of the AI tasks that we do, we're like, okay, but what are the humans doing? Okay, that like, how good are humans at summarizing letters? And now let's compare that to the AI. But you just can go layers and layers and layers deeper. And it's like, what is it to have a relationship? What is it to talk to yourself, right? Are you talking to yourself in your robot example? Is Is it any different to having a really good interactive diary? Is it just as cathartic? Um, mm. What is it to to be introspective? Are you being introspective with technology, or are you? You know, is that an external relationship or is that an internal relationship? 
And I think the humanoid robot thing is interesting because like I kind of said it in this call, right? You could switch it off. Humanoid robot in your living room, you ain't switch it off. And also like they all look like <laughs> sci-fi robot-y and there's lots of connotations there. But I think then what is a relationship? You know, what is a human interaction? Is it okay to have a relationship and I'm going to stick to the platonic here with, uh, well, with a machine, but more, maybe more importantly with you know, a model that generates responses, has memory of you, um, you know, understands your motivations. One of the things that we've toyed with is trying to understand more about the emotional context of physicians. You know, if you're like, if you're flying a plane and your co-pilot gets on and they're angry and they're badly dressed and they smell of alcohol, you're going to be like, you ain't flying this plane. Go off you go. But actually, can we, you know, can we build some of that technology into AI? Can it understand from your voice if you're tired or stressed? We like messed about a little bit with thinking we could have like some Easter egg features where it would detect if you're hungry and like one in a thousand at random, it just order you a pizza and a pizza would just turn up. And I thought that would be quite a, like a fun, you know, a fun feature <laughs> to, to build into AI that your know, vocal biomarker detection of hunger. Uh, wow. as a means to you know like like there's a whole bunch of things but again it's like what is a relationship what is what is and and to go even further back to what you talked about implants what does the human experience actually mean like what is purposeful what is valuable you know if you can inject mm. in your brain a bci that somehow makes you i don't know let's say you can run the 400 meters in five seconds flat i have no idea if these numbers make sense no that doesn't make any sense 100 meters in 10 seconds flat but so can everybody else. And what is the point of that race anymore? What is the point of competition? What is the point of human endeavor? And I think mm. that becomes a really interesting question. Like if you look at lots of sci-fi, I think sci-fi people have thought about this for a long time and they kind of illustrate yeah. the world of the future as to be actually very few people are actually enhanced because fundamentally human beings maybe don't want to actually experience or the experience of humans is about challenge and struggle. It's the same thing, like, to go back to our beginning discussion, why does no one play the computer games with all the cheat codes? Why do you struggle and like, yes. have to up-level your character? And why do you, you know, why can't you fight this boss now? Why did I try and defeat that giant frog like a hundred times in a row? Um, even though I could just change the difficulty and defeat it. Like, wasn't, the point was not to defeat this frog. It was the challenge, mm. right? It was the struggle. And the struggle gives you purpose and purpose is what human existence is about. So like... Yeah, it's, it's, it's it, honestly, that's why I find AI so interesting because it makes us look at ourselves in such a deep way. I think you made this point before, like maybe there's thoughts and processes that we couldn't previously have because like an eyeball can't look at itself, for example. Um, and maybe there's a cognitive equivalent where you can't analyze certain thoughts, but you can look at the behavior of a model or how you interact with something, you know, equivalent cognitively, maybe in some aspects. And then understand, oh, their behavior is there. Maybe that's how I think and how I behave. So like the human robot thing is really interesting because I can definitely see use cases. Like care, for example, is a huge use case, right? Obviously, we do not have enough carers. That problem is just going to get worse. Humanoid robots will almost definitely be in that space, I would think, in the next 10, 15 years. The technology is getting there for sure. But then what happens if, you know, your elderly mom or, you know, to be honest, mate, you and me, maybe 25, 30 years time, we're being looked after yeah. by robots. Um, and we develop personal relationships with them. And we say, this is my carer. And he looks after me or she looks after me or it looks after me or whatever the pronouns might be, you know, and that's, 
it's interesting. Again, like, what is the relationship with a book? What is the relationship with an AI? What is the relationship mm. with a computer? Like, we, we, we saw that. We saw syndromes coming along with technological advances. People having, like, second life syndrome or whatever they called it, you know, neglecting their real family. So I think it, there will always be technology for utility, technology that causes harm, technology that causes great benefit in society, and just by our very human natures, it will always be all three of those simultaneously for any technology. And then as clinicians, maybe as doctors, it's our idea and our responsibility to maybe optimize benefit, minimize harm for the bits that we can control and kind of anticipate maybe that, you know, the technologies will cause harm and we have to, to mitigate against that. And that's, that's our role in society. And there'll be other nefarious roles in society optimizing for other parts of that triad. And then, we, you know, the balance is the future we create, I guess. That's where the the proof comes out. I love that, man. And it made me think of uh, when you talked about, you know, what 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 is a relationship then? And again, it's our own fallibility, isn't it? We're, we're, look, we're the ones looking for it. It's perhaps not the fault of the AI who, who is, or say who, which is just trying to do what it's been told to do it's it's us the fallibility of us that we're going to look for relationships look at look at tom hanks in castaway you know wilson builds a relationship within yeah yeah inanimate ball just because and when when will and spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't seen the film but you know when wilson's drifting away i'm getting like (laughs) oh god too soon oh no (laughs) no not wilson yeah yeah, i mean we all built the relationship through a different screen it's very hard it is. I was like f- f- 10 stages removed. I'm the one getting emotive now about Wilson. <laughs> like it's crazy. So yeah, we are, we are looking for it, aren't we? And, and perhaps it is just something we embrace and, and, and you obviously know you, you're doing this very deliberately. And I think that's really interesting. And to bring this back into, into the present day, I guess you are doing this deliberately. Th- these are questions that you are asking of yourself and your team of how you practically do this, because let's be honest, like the conversation that we've had today is very interesting, particularly for me. It's very interesting for me. There is a reality in the here and now that the one thing that you championed and you talked about on the last podcast that we did is that, yeah, we can talk about all these things, but actually AI can actually just come in and solve some problems that just need to be solved. And, and like you said today, you know, actually just reducing the scope all the way down to, can we just solve some problems, please? And like, let's just get this bit done and deal with some of this stuff as and when. But ultimately, I like that. I like that about what you're, I always have liked that about what you're doing is, is the fact that ultimately there are problems to solve in the here and now. And let's use technology as a tool and let's think of technology as a tool. Let's think about this AI as a tool and let's build appropriately for the here and now so i think there is a dose of reality that comes along with conversations like this that yes we can talk about these things but there is no need to get ahead of ourselves at least when there are some clear problems to solve we don't need to worry about a world that i'm describing of the absolute quantified self and all these routes down diagnosis and treatment when actually we can just listen in the background and write some notes that then people don't have to do. And perhaps there's some interesting things that we can do to make things better as a result of that as well. So perhaps we should do that. Um, but for anyone, Dom, that hasn't listened to the previous podcast, do you want to just give like a quick rundown of what you guys are up to and how they might get in touch with you? 
Yeah, yeah, so for sure. So I'm, I don't know, you mentioned the top of the call. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of Tortoise AI. Our idea is that we're essentially going to give every clinician, as we talked about on this podcast, an AI agent to work alongside. The first rung of what that AI agent would do, essentially the goal is doctors and clinicians in general don't routinely touch the computer anymore. So all of the digital work is taken away. Rung two might be cognitive support, and there's a whole bunch of stuff in the future, but that's where we're starting uh, got some live product out uh, in the UK in the next couple of weeks and building on that uh, in a couple of other places. That's essentially intelligent scribing, so taking away the documentation, but over time we'll add, uh, at least in the next sort of six months, um, ability to summarize information and then also to do all the downstream tasks like ordering and things. And we think the first step here is, like as you say, simple problem, give more time back to clinicians to kind of do whatever's needed to do and let them decide. Is it see more patients? Is it take a break? Is it like, you know, work on their e-portfolio maybe? I, I don't actually know. what. But the, the point is time is a very valuable resource in the system. So that's where we start by unlocking. And then once physicians, clinicians are working alongside an AI routinely, then that becomes very interesting in terms of interactions, cognitive support. But all of that stuff really, and this is what I find fascinating about technology, you know, we could stop AI development today and still build for the next 20 years new things in healthcare specifically because we're so far behind and there's so much to do and the problems are so large that, you know, trying to keep up with the technology is almost pointless. Actually, the problem, the bottleneck now is how do we do this safely? How do we do it compliantly? How do we build regulatory frameworks where we can solve the problem in a safe way that we can evidence? And I think that's probably actually where we spend an awful lot of time now. Technology is super cool, but actually the deployment is actually really hard and the compliances are really hard. Um, it took us a year to get DTAC, for example, and I think that's a, a really illustrative thing. But once you've got it, then you're actually solving problems. So yeah, future is super exciting, but we're starting so we're towards, you know, create value today. Um, and then, you know, think about what the future might look like and see if we can get that pizza being ordered for you, I think is uh, gone. Absolutely. <laughs> Solve the problem and then bring joy is a concept from the tech world. If yeah. you're building then product. Order the pizza. And then order the yeah. pizza, quite. Oh, right. uh, Is Dom, that what they say? Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, Well, yeah. yeah, if you want to make something sticky, yeah, if you want to make something sticky, solve the problem, but then make it joyous. You know, if you tick five tasks in a row off Asana, you'll get a rainbow and a unicorn fly across the screen. It's these little things that give it personality and oh, all the rest of it. Yeah, solve yeah, the problem yeah. and then bring joy. Um, and Dom, if, by the way, if, 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 uh, if, the, if Tortoise has been listening in the background routinely to clinical practice, if you could just write a prompt to automate the e-portfolio, that would be absolutely wonderful and uh, would do a great service so to it. the rest. So on it. <laughs> to the rest of us. Yeah. That's not a joke. We are so, Good. so on that. Um, Good. I think medical education is, is not a product on its own, but as an adjunct to an agent, it's the most logical place. As a trainer, I've used GPT-4 to train. So one of the things, like, just when we finish, hmm. I was chatting to GPT the other day, and I ran out of things to say from the CEO side, and I was like, I'm still practicing, and I got some revalidation. So I said, look up a unusual case in internal medicine, present it to me, and then quiz me on it. And we had like this really funny conversation because like it didn't actually look up the information. So I kept asking it questions. It's like, I don't know. And I got really frustrated. But the principle was <laughs> actually it was really good. It really made me think about what, what wavy ECG segments, specifically this case, might indicate. And as a cardiologist, I was ashamed to say I had no idea. I was like, like <laughs> potassium? They were like, yeah, potassium's a great idea. And I was like, what was the diagnosis? Like, I don't know. I was like, well, this is a shit conversation. But uh, the theory is 
But actually, that's a really great place, you know, that's a, as a trainer. Mm. We haven't really thought about that at all or talked about that. Um, so maybe that's, you know, something for the future as well. But yeah. That was been a pleasure, mate. Thank you so much. Um, and I'll bring you back on for another wonderfully rambling conversation about AI at some point, which I look forward to. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content. 